Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, the founder of The Naked Voice. And I am here to welcome you to our online community, which is an opportunity for us to evolve and to inquire, to deepen and inspire our understanding of the nature of compassion and compassionate action and its transformative impact in the world. I'm particularly interested in exploring this theme with the lives and hearts and minds and teachings of poets, artists, writers, musicians and philosophers, teachers and social entrepreneurs and activists. I'm very privileged to be here in conversation, in dialogue with Jill Purse who is a long-standing friend, although we've both been so busy over the many years that it's wonderful just to have a bit more time together. Jill is a British voice teacher, family constellations therapist and author. And in the 1970s, Jill developed a, a new way of working with the voice, introducing the teaching of group overtone chanting, producing a single note whilst amplifying the vocal harmonics. Jill pioneered the international sound healing movement through her rediscovery of ancient vocal techniques, the power of group chant, and the spiritual potential of the voice as a magical instrument for healing and meditation. I am so excited, Jill, to speak with you today about your experience, personal and professionally, of compassion and how your experience of the healing voice has uh, had an influence in your understanding and practice and also dissemination of compassion with others. Welcome to you. Thank you. What a concept and one that I've sort of wrestled with really because I have absolutely no idea what it really, really means. I mean, Mm. uh, I mean, passion, you know, if you look it up, means suffering. And at the mm. same time, it means vigorous, emotional sort of energy. Mm. And com means with. And so it means on the one hand with, you know, with suffering. And on the other hand, with, with kind of vigorous energy. And, and somehow they're both the same. The Tibetans, for whom compassion is, compl- is utterly central, talk of loving kindness. And I think that's a, mm. that's a very wonderful sort of juxtaposition of images, which again is carried in the notion of compassion, I think. One of the things that over the years, I mean, as is clear from (laughs) the introduction, I've been at this a long time. And one of the things that I've realized, well, I realize it a long time, but I'm more aware of it every sort of second that I go on really, is that for me, the most important thing about the work that I'm doing is that I and we are creating a sonorous community mm. and, um, and, and community is essential. And, and we, you know, everything in our society at the moment is eroding every possibility of community that there is. And so mm. the, work that, um, the work that I'm doing, because it's very much focused around working in groups, 
is a sonorous community and and i and there is a sonorous community there are people who do a lot of the different things that i do they come to many of the family workshops they come to many of the week intensives and the mandala workshops so there is this ongoing community and we have a wonderful um facebook page which is just which is a closed one just for community members as it were and so one of the things that i found is especially on the extended workshops is that they're really all about um, helping other people. I mean, everything about mm-hmm. them is geared to towards everybody realizing what it's like, how magical it is mm-hmm. to help other people and to then in turn be helped by other people. So it's a sort of mutuality mm-hmm. which comes through the kind of mutuality of the way that we work in, in these extended mandalas, for example, but also in the family work which is mm. the thing about the family work is that you know everybody represents everybody is everything you know so in a in a workshop you become somebody's mother or aunt and they become your sister or or, or you know your daughter and, and or your husband and your father and so by the end of the time especially on the longer ones you've been everybody's everything and and um, in a very very profound way which goes way beyond anything on the level of consciousness which is where you know which is irrelevant to any healing really because any healing uh, has to address things which are deeply rooted in the unconscious where all our hurts lie. Mm. Mm, absolutely what gave rise in in the in your life you know what really inspired you to embark upon this direction with the use of voice and communication as a compassionate art form uh, and as a sonorous building community. I love that description. What was it about your own life that really inspired this pioneering and inspiring and healing direction? I mean, uh, many, many things, my whole life story, really. I mean, going back mm. way beyond is my mother was a concert pianist and my father was a surgeon and then he became a general practitioner. Mm. So I was a kind of bread-in-the-bone sandwich between music and healing. Mm. And, um, so, I mean, it started very early. Um, mm. But but I had, as a, as a child, I had a very eccentric father and um, who was born in Northern Ireland. He's Northern Irish. And um, we used to spend our summers in Ireland, in the west of Ireland, Oh, lovely. And on one occasion, because my father never did anything in a kind of normal way, he set us out on a journey at night to go to a very remote island off the west coast of Ireland. And um, so it was just my family, my brother and mother and father. And um, as we set off, a violent storm broom and um, overtook us and it was very clear I, I must have been about seven at the time it was very very clear to me we were terrified because it was obvious we were going to drown and the only other people in the boat were these three old women in the back of the boat dressed in black you know mm. three incredible crone figures who were going home to the island I mean everybody else was you know that was it it was late at night mm. and um, only mad people like us set out on adventures and so these three women, so we were absolutely terrified. And these three women at the back of the boat started to chant, a kind of wailing chant. It made the hair stand up on our, you know, on our back. And so what this oh. did was this, this chant uh, had an immediate effect of calming the storm. So the wave, you know, the, the wind subsided, the waves uh, abated, and, and we made it. And uh, it was entirely... You know, it was obvious that it, that it wasn't even a correlation. It was entirely the result of the chant that, wow. that this power of transformation of the human voice at this kind of primal level to affect not just our emotions, which was huge, but but the very elements themselves. So I had this kind of 
very powerful transmission of the power of the voice at, a, at an early age, which never left me. Wow, that's an extraordinary story. You know, and it really does, um, it really does highlight and uh, the whole role of uh, the voice as a shamanic instrument. Indeed. The story you've just shared is like, you know, it sounds biblical. Yes. Say more about the, uh, your experience of the voice as a shamanic tool, if you like, or as a shamanic catalyst. Well, I mean, just to sort of fill in the gap a little bit um, after that, um, mm. I came back to the voice because that was very sort of deeply rooted into my being. And yes. when I was at university, I became, I was very fascinated by spirals and form and the, and the coming into being of form. Wonderful. And so I was looking at it um, on the one hand through kind of hydrodynamics and the movement of water and what happens when you interrupt water, how it sort of winds back on itself and creates independent eddies or forms. And so that led to the whole sort of work on the spiral, which I never really completed. I only did the mystic aspect of the spiral as a journey of the soul mm. and never did. The, um, I mean, working with Morris Wilkins, you know, who discovered DNA, which is a helix, mm. a part of that. And, and, um, but, um, but so my real question uh, at that time was, how does form come into being? Because it was mm. really clear to me we hadn't a clue. And mm. when, when I was doing this work on the spiral, when I was at university, I remember going to the biology, the botany department and, and asking the professor there, you know, about, you know, the, the Fibonacci series, the, the logarithmic spirals and, you know, mm. the, the patterns, the, the geomet dynamical geometrical patterns in nature. And mm. he looked at me witheringly and he said, oh, we don't ask those kind of questions. And, oh. and, and, and it was that that really fired me because I knew in that moment that those were the only questions that were relevant. You know, Brilliant. They, and yeah. so I used the spiral as a question of the universe, and it, it it's led me everywhere, really. But the, but so this question about about um, when, of course, you know, we do ask those questions. But he he was just you know of another era. But, mm. but so really, it, I came to sound by asking the question about how form comes into being. Mm. And then I saw the the work made famous um, by people like Hans Jenny chymatics or cleagni patterns or what they were originally called Faraday waves, which mm. are the, um, the form that is inducted into uh, formless, seamless uh, liquids or, or, or heaps of matter through and only through the introduction of sound. Yes. And this made it very clear to me that out of, out of these seamless, formless heaps and piles, uh, form comes into matter when you introduce sound. Mm. So this is really what, what started me working with sound. So I became very, very fascinated with that. Mm. And, then, um, and then very, very soon, and then I, I, I was practicing, I was very interested in the spiritual transformational activities of, of many cultures, and I was studying this at a very early age. I mean, I was mm. always very interested in philosophy and transformation at a very young age and 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 I studied in many many different paths and experienced the uh, effect of chanting as a, a spiritual practice you know I, mm. I experienced it in Sufi chant and then and then the one that really took over was the, the, the Tibetan practice which I was involved with for maybe 50 years or so and mm. I discovered you know just what happens when a group of people chant together 
Mm. And, and so gradually I, I realized that the, the main thing was the practical, you know, the, the rest is all very interesting, but it's not going to really change anything. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized that we had actually gone silent. The, the, the more uh, so-called developed our society, our society apparently got, the less sound we made, the less, you know, the machines may get off mm. the sound, but we as humans made less and less. It was sort of a mm-hmm. marginalized from our lives and, in order to sing in a choir, you had to, at that point, you had to read music, you had to sing in tune, you had to have an audition, you had to have a lot of confidence around your voice for all those reasons and feel that, you know, people really wanted to hear you. And and so, um, and then through the development of, I mean, going back now, you know, to the 8th century, through the gradual development of musical literacy, this led to being able to record very sophisticatedly multiplicity of parameters of sound and, and, mm-hmm. and then other people later on could, and here the word is very interesting, execute it. This meant that the professional community was able to do it because you had to read music and, mm-hmm. and so gradually everybody else was eroded and made mm-hmm. irrelevant and excluded because it was the domain of the professionals from quite early on. Exactly. And of course, that has been, that has caused immense wounding in our culture, really, hasn't it? You know, so many people, you know, music becoming, uh, you know, just this elitist activity for a sort of minority of trained individuals. Yes, and I, I mean, mm. the thing about professionals is, and my mother was a concert pianist, so I know about this mm. you know, from uh, early on, is mm. that in general professionals, well, let, let's, let's take the opposite, amateur, you know, the opposite of. Mm is an amateur and the word amateur means to love it's the mm. latin uh, to love mm. so, so the inference is that you know if you're an amateur you love what you're doing and if you're a professional you don't and <laughs> well, this is not the case for all those professionals that you and i know nevertheless mm. is the case for many professionals you know the mm. professional musician it becomes a chore it becomes professional and becomes something that they have to do in order to feed themselves and their families and and no longer something that they really love. Right. It's that kind of, I, I, I don't know, how is it for you, this sort of sense of, I bet you've been assailed by many so-called professionals who've come to you as they've come to me with this, you know, having experienced real suffering with just being uh, required to entertain, required to impress, required to inspire at some cost to their own uh, you know, the, the, the wholeness of their own experience of sound and sound as consciousness, sound as a spiritual practice, every bit as much as a performative practice. I think they're, I think they're pretty mutually exclusive. <clears throat> I mean, if you make sound, if you do mm. it professionally, if you're a performer, other people come, they pay a lot of money not to do it, and they sit there and right. in order to uh, do it for them. And so the sound comes out of you and goes to them. And and so you don't really have any awareness and you really can't afford to have any awareness of what effect it's having on you. Mm. Because the whole focus is on that it goes from you to them mm-hmm. and, and leaves you behind. And so, you know, there isn't any opportunity for you to really reflect on the bigger picture of how it's affecting you. Mm-hmm. So I think they're really mutually exclusive. And, and you know, our whole society has become one of... Uh, passive observers or listeners, you know, so people go to concerts to hear other people who are these professionals who are therefore by definition better than you. Right. Do the thing which you're paying not to do. Yes, yes. And then you see it taken to really kind of gross old paradigm proportions, you know, in the form of these crazy sort of soap opera, uh, you know, X Factor um, 
operations where, you know, something like 19 million people uh, are watching a television screen, uh, just watching to see if one godforsaken individual <laughs> can be the voice, you know. know. Uh, it's just crazy, isn't it? All these pompous people sitting in a row judging them as well. You know? Oh, God, it's just, uh, it's very challenging, isn't it, to, to actually just to watch that. But all the more reason for this just beautiful work that you're doing and and let's maybe come back to your sonorous communities and to really look at how you're addressing uh these issues for everyday human beings for whom music is a birthright it's their birthright absolutely and and Mm -hmm. and that's really the the focus of my work is to is is, it's a kind of reclamation program i mean actually it's very interesting that this is a time of reclamation. You know, we've come to realize that the people in white coats haven't the faintest idea what's happening. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, and if they don't know and, and um, aren't doing anything about it, I mean, you just have to look around you and everything. It's very mm. clear they're not, you know, like extinction rebellion that's happening at the moment. All the young mm. people are, are up in arms about how we're, how we're um, ruining mm world for them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely was just singing on the bridge just yesterday anyway that's um at least not singing but um but um ha- ha- making music out of the bir- out of the prize of extinct birds and anyway oh wow uh, wow oh my goodness well that's that sounds like that deserves another whole <laughs> conversation He's very interested in in the sounds of extinct animals and and is wanting to do a kind of requiem for them. Oh, how amazing. How incredible. I mean, you know, isn't it bizarre that how out of such extreme adversity, you know, the next generation really is coming in with, you know, the ones that are waking up and that are seriously waking up really are confronting, you know, the old paradigm of listening and the old paradigms of this, this whole attitude, you know, to sound and to the, the loss of the sounds of humanity, of all the, you know, the multicultural sounds that exist right across the board of humanity, but obviously all the whole environmental, um, uh, you know, animals, as you say, the sounds of animals that are just literally disappearing as we speak. Languages. Oh. I, I remember a, a, mm. a very old friend of mine who wrote a book in one of the in the series of books I was general editor of in mm. the last incarnation. Mm. Uh, Susan Hiller. She had an exhibition mm. uh, where she had these dangling uh, earphones, and you you wandered around this darkened gallery and put different earphones on your ears, and they were all people speaking extinct languages. Wow. Oh. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Well, there's you know there's another whole massive uh, conversation. Uh, I was lucky enough not long ago to be um, involved in in a multicultural, multi-language uh, presentation here in in Bristol, where there's something like over 129 cultures represented just in this one singular city. It's incredible, isn't it? There's still a, a huge amount of scope and potential and possibility that's very much being caught, I think, by these very enlightened, inspiring young people and children who are coming out on strike. They're going to be called forward to, to really create songs to make a difference, that's for sure. Going back to sort of where I kind of 
left off there. I mean, mm. your question, which, mm. uh, you know, I was talking about a reclamation, reclamation program. And, and I mean, yes. you know, we, and going back to these guys in, with they're often men, you know, in white coats, um, mm. um, not knowing what's going on. So it's the same in everything. It's the same in medicine. You know, people are reclaiming their own healing. Mm-hmm. They're realizing that that you know the, the, what's prescribed for them isn't working, and so they're investigating all kinds of alternative healings. Right. Um, and then you know, exper- you know, art, art, you know, installations where it's more experiential, and um, yes. and then reclaiming our voices. And when I started doing this, the choirs were as I just described, but now everybody has community choirs. Yes, which, which you know, in fact, Cosmo, my son. Um, that I was just talking about, Cosmo Sheldrake, he, he ran a choir in Brighton for a while. Beautiful. And so now all over the world are these community choirs where mm. people don't have to have audition, sing in tune or, you know, read music. You know, they, they, they're they just there to sing. In fact, a friend of mine, well, you, you may know her in Canada where both you and I teach, um, uh, Siobhan Robinson, you know, she has oh, yes. the Getting Higher Choir, you know. <laughs> Tons of people. So, <laughs> so I think um, this is this is all changed very much, which I'm really grateful for. Because when I started this, it wasn't the case. We had all you know. I mean, all the reasons that we used to sing together. You know, the the community, the societal, spiritual practices that happened in churches and temples, and or what, depending on you know mosques and so on. All the all these kind of ways that people had of making sounds have been so eroded from our society. Yes. As people become spiritual but not religious or, or not spiritual or atheistic or whatever. So all the reasons that yes. we had for coming together in community have themselves been eroded. So yes. that we're left in, in this sort of rootless, rootless way. Um, yes. But there is something, my, my, my sense is there is some kind of extraordinary sort of evolutionary potential in all of this, isn't there, that is just causing us to really, I mean, to have these kind of conversations and to, to really investigate what is going on, how it is being addressed in this kind of renaissance of and, and a kind of evolution of language. We're, we're having to really listen to how we are communicating, how we can find new forms of communication to address the the adversity of our times. There's this kind of loss of just the erosion of old forms. Uh, But then out of this, coming back to your conversation around form as forms, new forms arise out of formlessness, that, that there is a sense of new sound, new frequencies. I don't know what your sense of that is, but certainly the shamanic traditions, for example, the shamanic lineages and the mystical lineages, somehow we carry those in our bones even still. They're knocking on our door, that's for sure. Well, I mean, uh, sound, is, sound is used to dissolve the band <coughs> between the worlds. And yes, whatever kind of method you're using, whether you, you know, I mean, in the shamanic tradition, where the, the other worlds are far more important than this one, but at the same time, you need to dissolve the boundaries between them so you can have free access and free passage. And so the right. way to do that either with plant substances, which people are investigating now more than ever, mm-hmm. or with rhythmic white noise, the rattle, or where, where the weather is clement enough, the drum. And, and so these, or, or with, the, with the kind of ayahuasca communities, the Icaro, so, you know, where the, where the spirit is the sound and the song itself. So yep. all 
Germanic traditions you sound as the as the uh, to break down the boundaries between the worlds so that they can have safe passage, and and this has always been one of the ways you know sound creates form and dissolves form. Every form has its own sound, and it's the sound of the thing which dissolves the form itself. So that's why it creates communities, and that's why. You know, because you dissolve the boundaries between each one of us becoming one, and at the same time, it, it allows you to move freely between the worlds. And and so this is, uh, along with plant substances, this is the way that people are beginning to discover, rediscover, uh, what it's always been used for. Lovely. Well, I, I mean, I love what you're speaking about because you're speaking about, you know, what would have been considered previously as these really high esoteric principles and understanding, which are now being made available, as you say, through these new medicinal means, of which sound is such a potent medicine. And they are, obviously, we're talking in this way with, with such passion for this, because we are both blessed to and privileged to work with people. Ordinary, every day, absolutely everyone uh, can access what we're speaking about, of course, can't they? Tell us a little bit more about how people can join your sonorous communities and so on uh, so that they can access this enriching experience of new language. Well, I mean, I think the best way of finding out is by going on my website, healingvoice.com, healingvoice.com. I have a huge amount of information there, as well as the program of workshops that I'm giving at any one time. Fantastic. I I do sort of three week-longs a year, and I do lots of weekends in London, and I teach in um, British Columbia, often in Massachusetts, and and, and, and I do these week intensives in, in the Somerset countryside um, regularly. So the best way is checking on the website and coming to one of those. And actually, one of the things you mentioned was, you know, rootlessness. And one of the aspects of my work is healing the family and ancestors. Yes. And what's so interesting is that um, as a result of doing that work, people have become very, very interested in their their roots and so more and more people are doing their dna and finding you know what percentage of them is celtic and what percentage of them is this that and the other and at the same time they're putting their ancestral piece of the jigsaw puzzle up on uh, ancestry.com and at the same time they're doing this work with me to heal inherited traumas uh, which are which is really about seeing the family through time and through the eyes of all members and whenever there's a kind of trauma historically in the family in in a previous generational member you know well as soon as a family member is no longer living they become an ancestor and, and that's really important to realize they're not just a missing dead person they've actually graduated and they've absolutely and the ancestors have a job to do which is to keep the living alive but they oh. have no agency unless the living acknowledge them and open up the streams of transmission and then i mean until then they're like clamorous children trying to get our attention being thoroughly annoying <laughs> they can do their job and and which is to help us and so this work is really about whenever in the previous generation there is any kind of interruption in what might be considered a a flowering of a life so an early death a death in on the battlefield in childbirth illness accidents mental disturbances incarceration dodgy dealing injustices emigrations abortions, adoptions, anything, anything which interrupts why this notional idea of a completion of a life yes. uh, causes a pattern of trauma which has a stability within the field of the family and ancestor, which is then passed down through the generations until somebody does something about it. And what it does is it kind of 
occupies somebody in every generation so that they find themselves following in the pattern of the earlier person in some way being excluded from the family either a similar way or through some other way and so but there's but it's really the curse and the blessing that's the curse the blessing is that they're the one that can heal it beautiful and this can happen in a weekend in a retreat uh where what would you advise well, I mean, doing, doing this, even doing a weekend of this work can make changes that people struggle to make in years of talking therapy. Mm, right, right. right it, it, it drills down deep into the unconscious. Yes. Uh, and, and which is where all these, these traumas lie. And, and we're able to, I mean, when I, sometimes, you know, if I'm just doing a weekend of this work, somebody will come back on the second day I mean, I remember this particular example, for example, somebody was staying with their mother, they lived in the country, they were a painter, and they said, you're not going to believe this, that's usually what people say, you're not going to believe this. And (laughs) (laughs) while we were working yesterday, this was just a weekend, my mother has been estranged from her six brothers and sisters for 25 years, they all telephoned while we were working. Oh my goodness, I'm getting goosebumps from just hearing that, that's absolutely beautiful my goodness yeah, it's me. amazing because it affects not just the person working but it because the field of the family and ancestors is a is a complex web and it includes everybody yes when you do this work everybody and and so it not only um gets rid of all the the interferences and the, and the disruptions and all the things that stop you living out your dream and and fulfilling your aspirations that's it for everybody in the family as well and this gives a whole new meaning to finding your voice, doesn't it? Finding your voice for this lifetime. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, in, in its full transparency and consciousness. That's, that's incredible. Jill, we're, I cannot believe, but we're going to have to close this particular dialogue. Is there anything you'd like just to complete with? It's been so rich to just, I would say, just open up this conversation, for which I hope we can have many more conversations like this. At this stage, anything you'd like just to say, just to complete uh, and round off our dialogue? Well, I just would like to encourage people, because the effect of the work is so powerful and so life-changing and transformative, inducting magic and order and, uh, and kind of bliss into people's lives, I, I would just like to encourage people to come and partake, to come and you know, do a workshop with me. The longer, the better. The week long, uh, you know, the longer we do it for, the more amazing it is. And so, absolutely, absolutely. And so, the work your um, your website again is healingvoicehealingvoice.com. What a privilege! Uh, and thank you so much for just uh, really being willing to be here and sharing this rich life's work, which is really just ongoing and deeply inspiring and very significant for our time and particularly in the evolution of compassionate communication on the planet. So thank you so much and to your amazing sons, Cosmo and Merlin for the extraordinary work they're doing and Rupert, you're really quite a powerful family. (laughs) And that's another whole conversation to have another time perhaps about what, what role compassion plays for in our lives as mothers, as well as voice teachers uh, and healers and so on but much gratitude to you and to our children of course uh, and to this extraordinary planet that we're living on that's teaching us mm. how we can communicate more compassionately a very enjoyable exchange thank you long may it continue thank you Jill 